When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Uh, Herd Tell Show. It is Wednesday, June the 15th year of our Lord 2022. How y'all doing? Good to see you. We missed you. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Got a lot to cover on the program today. Real good friend of ours. Hadn't been on the program in quite some time. Glad to have him back. John W. Miller's here. We're going to talk a little little league baseball. He's been writing a couple different pieces about cultural issues and how things like sports in our communities has changed. They've changed more to a for-profit model and how that has changed how our communities do things. What's that mean for our cultures? John W. Miller is our guest on the program today. Very excited to have him. Two great stories uh, that we're going to enjoy covering. One is how do you go from being 17, 18 years old and being the breadwinner for your family working at McDonald's to going into space? It's a great, great story. Going to cover that in a little bit. We're also going to go out to Minneapolis, our final segment. We always try to do an uplifting story. This is a great one. A community comes together and helps a woman buy her home so that she does not get evicted. It's a wonderful story. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. Also, we're going to go overseas. I'm going to talk gas prices with Russia. Uh, we've been on this since the Ukrainian war began, since Putin's illegal war of aggression in Ukraine. We told you all the sanctions in the world, all the talk, all the big speeches. It doesn't matter if you don't go after the oil and gas. They didn't. Russia is making more money on their gas, even with their reduced exports, than they're spending on the war in Ukraine. What does that mean? We're going to get to it in just a little bit. But first, uh, another issue of gas, and we're going to deal with it back here at home. President Joe Biden, we're going to go through this. We're going to have to build this up a little bit. We're going to go real slow for all the folks in the back and overflow and those of you from Logan, because I don't want to lose anybody here. But President Biden has written a letter to the oil and gas industry. This is, <laughs> uh, folks, 
This is an exceptional document. Uh, Joe Biden, let's start here. Uh, I just had a piece in uh, Spectator World. We'll link to it in the show notes, as we always do, about who Joe Biden is. And I'm not being mean to the man. I'm really not. He's the president. He deserves the respect to the office. But we have 50 years of book on who Joe Biden is. Nobody should be surprised about who Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is. We have book on him. He was in the United States Senate for 36 years. He was vice president under President Obama for another eight years. And he's been president for basically two years now. We have all we need to know about the character of him, his personality, how he does things, how he functions, how he does things. If you didn't do the homework on who Joe Biden is, that's on you. Now, apparently a lot of our media didn't or they just too lazy or whatever. Joe Biden has some, let's call them personality cues. Okay. Cues is in like theater cues. Like, you know, something's going to happen. Joe Biden talks big. He talks recklessly. Remember Sheriff Joe, uh, President Obama. This was at the State of the Union. And it's not like this was subtle. State of the Union, President Obama. Oh, Sheriff Joe, we're going to put him in charge of curing cancer and whatever. Sheriff Joe's not really a term of endearment. Sheriff Joe is because he's kind of that crazy guy who says big things and goes off half cocked a lot of the times. Problem is, when you're a senator, you can get away with that because you're just one of 100 people. When you're vice president, you can get away with that because you don't actually have any enumerated powers. You're just the heartbeat away from the presidency guy in case something happens, God forbid, to the president. But when you're the president, even when you're running for president, everything you say matters. Everything you do matters. It's not just the media or the political commentary or the American people that pay attention to your words. Foreign powers do. Companies do. Nations do. Markets do. Everybody listens to what the president of the United States says, because what he says matters a great deal. Now, with that background, I want to read you an excerpt from this letter, but hold that thought because we're going to come back to it in just a second. So President Biden is upset about gas prices. The line from the White House is that Vladimir Putin is the cause of the raised gas prices. Now, let's let's parse this out. Again, one of our founding principles that we have to keep in mind here is the president of the United States, whether he's a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, they get too much blame and too much credit for the economy. That's just the way it's always been. So when he says Vladimir Putin is to blame for higher gas prices, that is partially true. Gas prices went up when the Ukraine war happened, but they were already elevated before that. And they were elevated, we're going to talk about, because in no small part, because of Joe Biden. But let's go to this letter real quick. Uh, this is from the White House, official White House stationery. Very pretty, even has a graph on it. Very amazing. I want to read you a small excerpt from this. To be sure, this is Joe Biden writing, or more specifically, his staff wrote this. The shortage of refining capacity is a global challenge and a global concern. He's right about that, by the way. Around 3 million barrels a day of global refining capacity have gone offline since the onset of the pandemic. That would be, you know, 2020, excuse me inhibiting our ability to ramp up supply of gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. I am working with allies and partners in countries around the world to encourage global refinery capacity to come back online. But in the United States alone, oil refiners significantly reduced their capacity during the pandemic. In the year before I took office, listen to this carefully, we're going to come back to it. In the year before I took office, that'd be 2020, Refineries in the United States reduced their capacity by more than 800,000 barrels a day, leaving American refinery companies today at their lowest level of capacity in more than half a decade, five years. 
I understand the many factors contributed to the business decision to reduce refinery capacity, which occurred before I took office. President Biden's official letter that he has put out now. But at a time of war, refinery profit margins, well above normal, being passed directly onto the American families, are not acceptable. There is no question that Vladimir Putin and principally responsible for the intense financial pain of the American people and their families are bearing. But amid a war that has raised gasoline prices more than $1.70 per gallon, historically high refinery profit margins are worse than the, that pain. Your companies and others have an opportunity to take immediate action to increase the supply of gasoline, diesel, and other refinery products you're producing and supply to the United States market with prices your products where they are today. You have ample market incentives to take these actions. I also encourage you to continue maintaining and expanding fuel supply. We will link to this letter. Please read it all for yourself. Like we always say, you need to read the source material yourself. We will link to this. Read the entire letter. That's the kind of the nut of it. <laughs> okay, a couple things here. Refineries are one of the most heavily regulated things we have in America for environmental reasons, for good reasons, by the way. They are you know, environmental challenges. There's a lot that goes into why refineries aren't expanded and why we haven't built a new oil refinery in way, way too long. It also goes for things like natural gas, like liquid natural gas terminals, which if we had, we could have been exporting more of our natural gas over to Europe, which would have also helped here. But let's talk back up for a second. The president said the year before he took office. Do you remember what happened the year before he took office? Again, the president's words matter. You're not Senator Joe Biden anymore. You're not Vice President Biden. You're not Sheriff Joe. During the debate, 2020, Joe Biden, this is on video. You can look it up. You can watch it. You can listen to it. I'm quoting here. No more subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. It ends. That was Joe Biden in the Democratic debate. It was one of his signature lines of the entire campaign. It was his environmental bona fides to the Democratic Party and for progressive folks that find environmental issues to be very important. He said that. He said that as the front runner. If you're running a company, the oil company, for example, and the natural gas industry, and the incoming president of the United States has said this, they're going to take measures. They're going to reduce capacity. They're going to scale back. They are going to prepare to be dealing with a federal government that is going to be hostile to their business model. Now, not that there isn't environmental concerns and all that. We'll deal with that some other times. But that's just how these things work. This wasn't Senator Joe Biden saying this. It wasn't Sheriff Joe or VP Joe. This was incoming president of the United States frontrunner Joe Biden. So when he became president, the oil and gas industry bowed up. And they prepared for a hostile administration. That's part of what's going on here. For the president to turn around and say that he had nothing to do with this, and this is all Vladimir Putin, is utterly ridiculous. Now, it went from bad to really crippling people because of Vladimir Putin. That's true. But let's back up again. If we had taken care of our refinery business in the first place, if we had found a happy medium between environmental concerns and being energy self-sufficient from the rest of the world, we wouldn't be in this mess to start with. Now, that has a lot of blame to go around, and that's not all on President Biden at all. But he's the president now. He could take regulatory action right now to try to loosen some of this, and he won't. But he's also now flailing because gas prices are absolutely killing his approval rating. 
he's doing some very questionable things like reaching out to Saudi Arabia and getting us re-entangled with those folks. And let's not go down the list of human rights violations and other issues we've had with the Saudis over the last 40, 50 years. Things have consequences. Things do not happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Sheriff Joe, Senator Joe, VP Joe, he could say things, big things, big braggadocious things, and it didn't have an effect. President Joe Biden, it has an effect. This didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. And the sequence was the man who was probably going to become president said he was going to kill the oil and gas industry. And the oil and gas industry reduced capacity because of it. Gas prices went up. And then when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, they went up even more. So you can split that however you want to, 70, 30, 60, 40, 80, 20. It doesn't really matter. The president is not to blame for all of the gas prices. But when he writes a letter like this, and he tries to put it off on other people without taking any accountability whatsoever for him, he's also bringing out one of the worst traits from Senator Joe and VP Joe and Sheriff Joe before. He never takes accountability for anything. They can talk about his empathy with other people, and the president's been very, very good on things like that. He's a man who's gone through immense personal tragedy. He knows how to suffer with people. He knows how to connect with people on a personal level. Empathy is not accountability, and there is very very little evidence over 50 years in office that Joe Biden will take accountability for anything. And when you're the president of the United States and you refuse to take accountability, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat or whatever else, that has immense consequences. The president of the United States of America should be setting the example for accountability. Now, we understand politics is politics, especially with somebody like Joe Biden, who's a political animal through and through for over 50 years. But accountability matters. Mr. President, your own words brought about a lot of this and your actions as president for over two years where you're in charge. Nobody else. You, you're in charge, has a track record and blaming everybody else isn't going to fix this. You need to be the president. You need to take accountability and you need to take steps to make this better. Writing letters to other people and blaming them isn't going to get it done. And your approval rating shows nobody's buying it in any way. More Hertel right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
I'm back to Hertel. Let's go overseas real quick. Uh, BBC.com, uh, the BBC News Service. Russia's oil export revenue. Um, we know the war in Ukraine. We've been covering it. We're over 110-some days into the war now. We've said from the beginning that the sanctions and the other measures, unless you go after the oil and the gas production, it's all meaningless. Uh, so from the BBC, now we have a measurement of how pointless it is. Revenues revenues uh, have been falling since March. This is from the BBC. As many countries shunned Russia, it also warned of potential loopholes and efforts to curb Russia's imp- of Russia's imports. The European Union um, makes up 61% of those imports. Looking at you, Germany, Schultz machine, uh, worth approximately $59 billion. The CRE reports, and this is the important part, Russia still earned $97 billion in revenue from fossil fuel exports the first 100 days of the Ukraine conflict from 24 February to 3 June. Overall, exports of Russians' oil and gas are falling, and the revenue from the energy sales are also declining from their peak of well over a billion a day in March. But, and this is the nut of this, the revenues still exceed the cost of the Ukraine war during the first 100 days with the CREA estimating Russia spending around $876 million per day on the invasion. In other words, it's not really costing the Russians that much money without their oil exports being measurably cut down. The EU is just not going to wean themselves off Russian energy, especially once we get through the summer and we start looking winter dead in the eye. They're not going to cut back on their energy. This is just the fact of the matter. The war in Ukraine is going to go for a really long time. Remember, in the Donbass region, the eastern regions where most of the fighting is going on now, they've already been in a shooting war since 2014. We need to deal with reality here. It's going to be a very long war. It's going to be a very long conflict. And there's too many people in Europe who are too concerned with their energy prices and their own skins and their own economies to really do anything meaningful against Russia. This is going to be the status quo for quite some time, I'm afraid. Russia is still going to make more money on oil than it costs them to do their wickedness in Ukraine. It's an ugly war. It's an ugly world. And that's just the reality of the matter for the foreseeable future. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we get to talk about something kind of sad, but a little bit of fun and something that's actual cultural impact, not that political cultural impact we're talking about. Talking about how you actually live your everyday life. Uh, Our good buddy, he is a documentarian. He's a longtime journalist. He's been on the show before. Great to have him back. John W. Miller, how are you, sir? I'm great this morning. Um, Great to be back. Always like talking to you. Yeah, we love having you. Uh, We talked about Moundsville last time, your great documentary. Uh, here's something else that's kind of synonymous with small town American life, but also used to be in the cities, which you're going to talk about because it's kind of disappearing in the cities. Little League Baseball. What got you writing about this? It's a, you got a great piece in American Magazine. What got you on Little League Baseball? Well, I um, am a baseball player and coach kind of by trade. It's been a kind of side career. Um, when I was growing up in Brussels in the 1980s, in Belgium, it had a really big um, community of Americans, probably 20,000 Americans, and a very, very good little league with a thousand kids and the ambassador to, to Belgium from the US would throw out the first pitch. And 
we would send teams to Williamsport and the Little League World Series. It was a very good league. And I, I played in it and I, I just loved it. And I got to be pretty good at baseball. And I, I played in college a little bit at Mount St. Mary's in Maryland. And then in my 20s, played club baseball in Europe. And I moved to Pittsburgh in 2011 for the Wall Street Journal. And after I decided to leave the Wall Street Journal, I decided to get back into baseball coaching. And so I, I Googled Pittsburgh baseball coaching job. And I found a job about half an hour north of the city with a private club. And because I was there as a coach, not a journalist, I'm not naming the club or any of the players or families. Um, but it's, it's the reason I wrote about it was it was pretty typical of what youth baseball has become now in America. And so I thought it was worth taking a dive into this transition we've done from uh, all volunteer based sort of participatory leagues to the more private, more expensive, um, often higher quality of play. Um, it's often called travel sports or travel baseball. I, I prefer to call it private or privatized sports um, because I think that more accurately describes what it is because it's often uh, people um, trying to make a profit who own the club and who are you know using it to you know pay for their their own salary and pay for their 401k and pay for their kids education so it's becoming like little, little businesses which obviously you know this is, this is America There's nothing wrong with starting a business um, I just thought it should be you know talked about a bit more now we're not we're much of an age it wasn't that long ago when I was a kid you know you played t-ball and then you played little league and then you might play you know what they call pony league or American Legion ball and then other than that you go play you know high school middle school and then college the travel teams talk about the rise of how this started to change um, because, and you went into some baseball history in your piece that some folks may not, baseball really is America's organic sport. Like this is something we came up with on our own. When did it start to change from, okay, you play T-ball, you play little league, you play maybe, you know, American Legion ball, something like that to these travel teams. And what changed that? So it was in the nineties and, 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 and aughts. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, why well, I, I know that what motivated um, people is having a higher quality of play. And it was kind of imitating the all-star teams that would be put together every year for little league baseball. So little league is an incredible organization. It spans the globe. When I was a kid in Brussels, we had little league teams. And if you're charter little league, you have access to this global tournament where the best players from your league get together and they can play. And if they keep winning, they go all, all the way to, not just Williamsport, but other um, uh, places for different age groups. And I, I as a coach, twice I, I won uh, European championships and Little League paid for my little brother and, and, and his teammates and, and me to fly to Michigan, to fly to Maine, to compete in global tournaments. And so you have this pyramid structure. But the problem is that if you lose your team of all-stars, they uh, have to stop playing. And that can happen in, in June or July in the tournament. The World Series is not till August. So what happened was parents of, of teams uh, who, whose players had, had lost in these tournaments were like, well, we'd like these guys to keep playing. This is a great team. How can we do that? And so you had in the 90s, you had started seeing um, development of private complexes, which would charge money to um, uh, have teams come play in tournaments. And where I live in Pittsburgh, there's a bunch of them. There's a guy who's like a plumber who uh, with his, the, this land he owned built two baseball complexes and, it, and every weekend from, you know, April to, to October, um, he can get 20, 30 teams in there, each paying a thousand dollars to play in the tournament. And the, the, the tournaments are set up to be really exciting. So often you have two games on the Saturday that are round Robin and Sunday, it's a knockout round. 
and it's thrilling to to be a part of that. And so it's kind of taking that little league World Series experience and commodifying it and making it into a product you can sell, um, and and that can be for anybody who can who can pay you know, team together. And we lose in in, in June uh, in that that you know big tournament. Uh, you're not out for the whole summer. So it's kind of turning that Little League World Series experience into a product is is what I think happened. Yeah, that's the business side of it. The cultural side of that is when you start doing all-star teams and you start doing these travel teams and tournaments, though, you've moved away from, well, this is our city team or our community team or our county team, and now it's a mismatch of people. And that's where you started delving into, okay, this isn't just a community team anymore. And that's a big change, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the old days, it would be uh, something that would really unite, um, you know, all the kids in a school or all the kids in a school district or, or town. You'd all play in this league, and you could all, you know, different levels of skill all be a part of it. Um, now it's like, yeah, the the better players will be driven off to uh, the next suburb to play in in somebody else's travel team. So uh, it's definitely not healthy on a basic human level. Um, as a as a baseball coach, and I explore this contradiction in in the story. As a baseball coach, I find that the higher level of play quite satisfying and I like coaching good teams and I don't see why I wouldn't, why people wouldn't like better baseball instead of, you know, crappy baseball, but yeah, it's destructive on a kind of societal level because it, it takes away the, the, this reminder that you, even if, if you're a better player than me, we can still be friends and we can still be on the same team. We can still, we can still get along. And it's kind of, to me, it's contributing to this. Uh, you know, division in America, which is often economic. I mean, it's a uh, society that's in- increasingly unequal. And so here is a, a place that used to be united, but now uh, there's one world for the the sons and daughters of, of real estate developers and medical salesmen and bankers, and a different world for the, the sons and daughters of people who work at Walmart or McDonald's or Amazon. Yeah. And John W. Miller joining us. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, baseball is a bit of a complex sport. You got to have equipment. You got to have a lot of people involved. It's not like soccer where you can just roll a ball out there and go kick it. Uh, there's money involved. And when you start talking about things like dividing it into travel teams, what happens is when you start having an elite level and you touch on this in your piece, a lot of the lower level stuff or the community stuff or the municipal stuff starts going by the wayside. You mentioned in Pittsburgh, uh, when you went to Pittsburgh as a journalist back in uh, the early part of 2011, there's all these great facilities, but nobody playing on them. And part of what happens is there's only so much money going somewhere. And when you're pipelining a certain group of kids, the other group of kids, there's not a lot left for them to play, is there? And this is a particular problem in, in baseball. Um, if you take away the best five players, uh, say out of 30, say, say you have three little league teams, you take out the best five players, you lose the kids who are strike throwers, who are kind of generating the rhythms that baseball depends on. Uh, for to have a good youth baseball game, you need strikes, you need balls put in play, you need a core group of kids who are good at catching and throwing and catching the ball. If you take them away, the game kind of falls apart, which is not a problem you have in soccer or basketball, where the game might slow down or you might have fewer goals, but essentially you still have kids running around and it's still fun. It's still this kind of joyful physical thing. But in baseball, people just stand there. And so you need those core group of kids to keep the, the pace of the game strong. Um, and that's a, pr- a problem that's particular to baseball. And I, I think it's why uh, you've had this decline in recreational participation. So now it's like for baseball, it's either you're part of a travel team, you're paying a bunch of money 
and you're, you're pretty ambitious or you're not playing baseball at all. You're playing something else. Yeah. What does it do? Cause you talk about this too. When you lose a sport like baseball, like little league baseball, where it's pretty much open to anybody can show up and play, you can find, you know, bar gear or whatever. When those lower levels disappear, again, there's the business side of it and then the community side of it. What did it do to the community side for these, especially in the inner cities where baseball has almost disappeared in a lot of them? Where, what does that do to the communities where they don't have that sport edge that you found when you started researching this? Uh, I mean, you know, they've lost baseball. I mean, I, you know, I love baseball, but I'm not somebody who says that you have to play it or that, you know, you can have a happy life without playing it. So, I mean, people play other sports and, and you've seen, I mean, not just in cities, but in, in, in suburbs and rural areas. I mean, lacrosse is now way more popular than it was when we were kids. Um, you know, kids playing golf, which I find kind of insane, but there, that does happen. Uh, so yeah, but you're right. Uh, in cities, baseball is less popular and particularly in the um, African-American community, it's less popular. And in my piece, I chronicle uh, some efforts to change that. And it really depends on a lot of grassroots work. It's very hard to kind of manage from the top down. And, and despite, you know, MLB's efforts, uh, you can't just throw a bunch of money at this and, and hope uh, it'll just kind of turn into kids loving baseball. You need people doing the work. And so in my piece, I chronicle um, Nelson Cooper and Pittsburgh Harbaugh Academy in Pittsburgh. There's also a guy in Philly named Amos Iran who has Anderson Monarchs. And every city has one of these uh, organizations. So if you care and, and want to help, I encourage you to figure out uh, who in your city is doing this work and, and support them because that is what it takes. It takes people actually coaching, you know, on the field three, four times a week doing the work, which is not easy. And, you know, it's pretty skilled coaching task to try to get kids excited about, about a sport. Yeah. And to be fair here, this isn't just a baseball problem, uh, basketball, it, the same things happening in basketball with AAU uh, which you know about football, it's becoming a very clinic-driven, specialty-driven sport where you go to clinics for whatever your position is, especially for quarterbacks and wide receivers and things like this. Th this really is a change in how we view youth sports in America at large. It's not just baseball, is it? It is, and, and the, the stereotype is kind of like that that uh, um, these are the children of people who who think their, their kid's going to play in college or, or play, play, play in the pros. I think it's more that this is just a better experience just in the moment that, that like you, you pay the three grand for your 12 year old to play little league or this, this new kind of baseball, because that's, what's the most fun. And, and if you're a good parent, you know, in America, you're supposed to spend the money to ensure your, your child's being fulfilled. <laughs> and so it, it's like, this is what the good baseball is now. It's like the premium product, if you will, to use yeah. the advertising language. Um, and so, yeah, there are obviously some kids who are good enough to, to dream of playing at higher levels, but for the most part, I think you're just paying this because this is what, this is what the form of, of baseball or, or, or basketball or football uh, looks like now. Yeah. John W. Miller joined us to take a quick break. He didn't just write about the problem though. As a good journalist, he turned around, wrote some solutions too. We'll talk about that. Also going to ask him about a few of the people he met researching this, the great John W. Miller. We love having him more with him on Hertel right after
back with our buddy John Miller talking a little baseball. Okay, so we know what the problem is. We know that the money's an issue. What's some of the things we can do about it? My first question about this, though, is if it's a cultural problem, <laughs> like you said, MLB's throwing plenty of money at Little League Baseball. That's not the issue. How do you change a cultural problem? You have to have a cultural solution, don't you? Yeah, and that means the people at the grassroots uh, having ideas. Um, so as a follow-up to my first piece, I wrote about some of those ideas. And um, you know, basically, if you think about uh, you know, youth, baseball, youth baseball as its own sport, what you need is for there to be balls in play. You cannot have youth baseball become a contest of whether the pitcher can throw a strike or not. So you need to change the rules so that you have that ball in play at least every 30 seconds. So one thing I like to do is play one strike and you're out or two strikes and you're out where I'm pitching or a machine is pitching and you're getting a strike and the ball's in play. So that's one way um, co- coach is catching to kind of make the pitchers more comfortable and have them uh, you know, get rid of pass balls and, and sort of accelerate the tempo. Um, playing uh, with there's a guy in California named David Klein who has a game called Speedball, which is three teams uh, show up every game. Uh, one team hits, one team plays the infield, one team plays the outfield, and you rotate. So you get more at bats with only five players, and you have different rules to accelerate the game. Uh, smaller balls to make it easier to throw strikes. Um, five on five with three bases. You know, th- th- people think that baseball is kind of etched in stone and, and you know, handed down in the constitution, but it's actually a very malleable game. And there are lots of rule changes in the 19th century. And I think you just have to change the rules until it is exciting again. And, and if, if it's not, then why, why would a kid want to play if it's, if it's just standing there? Uh, I don't know if you know, know the, the Peter Paul Mary song, right field. They sing uh, uh, playing right field can be lonely and dull. Little leagues never have lefties who pull. And so it's a song about a kid just standing there and all of a sudden the ball comes out to him and he's just shocked. So yeah, baseball should not be that, that picnic <laughs> It should be fun and, and rhythmic and have uh, you know, good pace to it. And so you need to change the rules. So you get that pace. Now that's something that football has done in America, especially now we talked about how the, that's become a clinic kind of sport that you do. They play seven on seven. You do clinics, you go to things like that. It seems to me like something like that, because it sounds like, well, that's not the real game of baseball. No, but what it does do is the one thing that's really hard to get little league to do is it builds a skill set, but it still does it in a fun way that doesn't drag like a full blown game does. Yeah, that's really smart. I should look into that. I, I don't know that much about football, but um, yeah, that seems like they've, and they're kind of forced to, I guess, because the the the, the grown up game is, is so insane. So you need to modify it. But yeah, I'm all I'm all for just making up stuff that uh, works in the moment um, and not trying to, you know, be too traditionalist. Because eventually, if they're good, they'll they'll be able to play at the higher level in the real game too. Yeah, John W. Miller joining us now. Uh, you have one suggestion that I think is a great suggestion, but let's be honest: baseball can be a little stodgy. They can be a little traditionalist. They can be a little slow to change. But I think you have a good suggestion here. You talk about the coaches at the little league level. It's set in stone that they're not to be paid, but this is something that should probably be changed because. And you had a great line in there: is like, well, you don't expect free violin lessons. Why would you expect free baseball lessons? Should they should they have some kind of a standardization of coaching? Well, um, yes. Uh, it seems like it, it's going to be hard to fix this problem if you don't admit that your average parent, with all due respect, is um, probably not a qualified 
baseball or softball coach. And, and by the way, when I say baseball, I include softball and I, I include girls, girls sports. So um, uh, there should be a middle ground between uh, a private club or somebody's making, you know, and there are club owners, by the way, who make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so there should be, a, should be a middle ground between the the volunteer parent who knows nothing about the sport and then the private club where um, it's, you know, three or $4,000 to play. Um, and so I think it would be reasonable to have, you know, a fee that would be, you know, say $300, um, which is manageable for almost all families if, if, you know, in the broads per year in broad sense, and then uh, paying coaches something. And so then you can get some qualified people and, and you can demand a kind of performance and demand a kind of pace and de- demand a standard of, of, of fun and, and excitement that um, you don't get if it's a, a parent who does not know what they're doing and just standing there. And, and you know, it drives me crazy when I see a, a dad standing at home plate, hitting a ball to one kid at a time uh, and while eight kids just stand there. <laughs> so I, I bring up the, the European kind of club model where it's often um, a public field or uh, kind of a public structure, but you're, you're paying the, the, the coaches and, and the, the fee is somewhere between the, the little league, you know, 50 bucks or hundred bucks. And then the private club, three or 4,000. All right. One of the things we always appreciate about you is you find these great human interest stories. Give me a couple that you found writing about this, about baseball. Give me one or two of the great individual people that you met that really bring this to life. So I, I, I mentioned Nelson Cooper, who's a, um, an African-American man in his twenties who, when he moved to Pittsburgh, was disappointed not to find baseball. And so he started out with a, a group of kids and, and just um, running practices and games. And now he has 80 kids playing all kinds of levels and is sending a kid to, to um, there's a, a kid from that program going to play shortstop at a major college. There's um, you know, just a sort of culture and community that he's built around it. And I, I really uh, admire that. Um, I interviewed a uh, former major league catcher, Charlie Green for the story. And Charlie grew up in Miami. And he told me when he was playing little league, he played one game a week and that was the highlight of his week. And it wasn't more than that. And that guy made it to the major leagues. Um, so you don't need the, the, all the, the bells and whistles sometimes, um, you know, if you love it and you're talented, uh, you'll, you'll get there eventually. All right. You coach it yourself. Tell me one of yours though. What, just put it on a human level for me. You're a great writer, which is why we always enjoy talking to you, but T- tell us what you get out of something like little league and working with the kids. And I mean, it's a game, it's a sport, you're helping kids. What does it mean to you though? Well, I, I love, um, you know, sort of leading uh, players into a, a place where they can play really well without, you know, yelling and screaming. I feel like kids usually don't listen that much to, to what you're saying, especially in a group. So it's all about setting up a structure where they're figuring it out for themselves by playing and then, you have to make adjustments, but ultimately they have to learn by doing. I do try to get, um, you know, boys to talk about their feelings essentially uh, in a way that maybe has not been presented in them before. One example, there was a game a few years ago where we had scored uh, four runs in the, in the top of the six, in, six in the sixth inning game to take like a three run lead. And then we gave up four to lose the game in the bottom of the six. And everybody was completely devastated and everybody was just sitting there um, just, you know, crying and it was, you know, they, they were 10 it was a really crushing loss. In the next practice, I sat everybody down and I said, well, let's talk about what you were feeling in that moment. And, and I imagine that, uh, the feelings you have could be shame. And I explained what that meant and, or anger, cause you're mad 
or pride because you came back um, or, you know, sadness. And I explained what all those feelings meant and, and they kind of took it all. In. And then I went around and had them say, which of those feelings they identified with. And one of the kids goes, coach, I felt all of those. <laughs> and so, yeah, just the, the, you know, I'm not there to, to lecture people about, you know, big, heavy stuff, but when the moment comes up like that, then you have their attention and they, you can kind of help them connect. Cause I remember as a, as a kid, you know, just feeling very angry whenever I failed and baseball is a lot of failure and getting really angry and, and mad and, and not knowing what to do. And, and I, you know, wishing I had, or in hindsight, wish I had a, a coach who had sort of explained how you cope with that because baseball is a sport where it can just be excruciating. You're by yourself, you fail, everybody's looking at you. Um, and so, yeah, it's a chance for a coach to, to kind of, uh, use that moment to, to help somebody you know grow up a little bit. Yeah. John W. Miller, love talking to you, my friend. He's got two great pieces on this topic out in America magazine, how America sold out little league baseball is one of them. Nine ways to get kids to fall in love with baseball again is the other one. We will be linking to both of them in the show notes. You, man, you, my friend have a lot of irons in the fire though. Let folks know what you have going on. You, we've had you on before about Moundsville. Folks can still go find that at pbs.org. Uh, let folks know what you're doing in your social media so they can keep up with you. Uh, so yeah, I, my Twitter handle is J W M journalist. Um, I, uh, write a column for America every couple of weeks. Um, I'm working on a book project about baseball, which I, I can't detail yet, but it's about baseball. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at different coaching jobs in Pittsburgh. So keeping busy and, uh, yeah, enjoying the kind of the interest in, th- in this story, because I, I didn't expect it would have this much interest, but people really care about baseball. So it's fun to be a part of that. I was, I was on the, um, effectively wild podcast yesterday, the number one baseball podcast talking with, um, Ben Lindbergh about all this. So it's really neat that, um, you know, everybody is so uh, interested in this and, and, um, I'm grateful to be part of a, a, the conversation in a subject I, I love so much. Yeah. Well, you do very good work, sir. And we love having you and we will definitely have you back soon. So John W. Miller, appreciate the time, my friend. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Back to Hertel. Okay, I love this story. This is actually from back on the 5th of June, but we didn't have a chance to cover it. So I want to bring it up today. Uh, you know, Blue Origin, that's Jeff Bezos's uh, space missions. The most famous one, of course, is when he put Shatner into space, which was all kinds of fun. Um, this is from CNN Business. Most passengers of the pay an undisclosed sum for their seats, but Katya Escazaretta an engineer and space science communicator from Guadalajara, Mexico, was selected by a nonprofit called Space for Humanity to join the mission from a pool of thousands of applicants. The organization's goal is to send exceptional leaders to space and allow them to experience the overall effect of phenomenon frequently reported by astronauts who say that viewing the Earth from space gives them a profound shift. In perspective, Esca Zaretta told CNN Business she experienced the overview effect in my own way. Looking down, this is a quote, and seeing how everyone is down there, all of our past, all our mistakes, all our obstacles, everything, everything is there. And the only thing I could think of when I came back down was what I need 
to tell people this. I need Latinas to see this. I need to just completely reinforce my mission to continue getting primarily women and people of color up in the space and doing whatever it is they want to do in science. Esca Zaretta is the first Mexican-born woman to travel to space in the second Mexican after Rodolfo Neri Vela, a scientist who joined one of NASA's space shuttle missions back in 1985. But listen to her backstory. This is the part that I think is pretty cool. She moved to the United States with her family at age seven and recalls being overwhelmed in the new place where she didn't speak the language and the teacher warned her she might have to be held back because of her academic progress. Quote, I've just really fueled me up ever since then, ever since third grade. I just kind of went off and never stopped, Eska Zaretta recalled in an Instagram interview. When she was 17 and 18, Eska Zaretta was also the main breadwinner of her family on a McDonald's salary. I had sometimes up to four jobs at a time just trying to get through college because it was really important to me. These days, Eska Zaretta is working on her master's degree in engineering at Johns Hopkins. She previously worked at NASA's famed Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. She also boasts of following more than 300,000 users on TikTok, hosts a science-focused YouTube series, and is a presenter on the weekend CBS show Mission Unstoppable. Space for Humanity, which was founded by Dylan Taylor, a space inventor who recently joined Blue Origin himself, chose her because, quote, we were looking for some people like her, who were leaders in their community, who have spheres of influence, people who are doing really great work already, and people who are passionate about whatever it is they do. Eska Zaretta said she was motivated to become a public figure after working at the Jet Propulsion Lab and not seeing other engineers who look like her. There are so many people in this world who dream about the same things that I was dreaming, and yet I'm not seeing them here. So what's happening? It's not enough for me to have to make it there. I also need to bring others with me. On her Blue Origin flight on Saturday, again, this was on the 5th of June, Eska Zaretta flew alongside Evan Dick, an investor who had already flown once. The other passengers included Hamish Harding, who lives in the UAE and is chairman of a jet brokerage company, and Jason Robinson, the founder of a commercial real estate company, Victor Vescazavo, the co-founder of a private equity firm, and Victor Correa Hispania, 28-year-old who secured his seat after buying an NFT from a group called the Crypto Space Agency. What a group, but what a cool story. When she was 17, 18 years old, she was supporting her family at McDonald's. Now she's been in space. I like stories like that. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's have some good news. I love this story. Let's go up to Minneapolis. Uh, a lot of people talking about housing, people being displaced, people having trouble staying in their homes. This community decided to do something about it. It's called Powderhorn Park, part of Minneapolis. And this lady had her community rally around her. Uh, the Powderhorn Park community, this is from the Washington Post, decided it would not allow her neighbor to be displaced. The group was well-equipped to mobilize on Taylor's behalf, Taylor's the resident 
quote, we had an active local hood group because we were within blocks of George Floyd Square, Folsom said, adding that the 2020 protest over Floyd's murder by the police officer had already brought the community closer. The infrastructure was there, the communications line were there, and the neighborhood relationships were there. Organizers sent a letter to the landlord urging him to wait on evictions and start negotiations with Taylor so he she could buy the house. Now, backstory here, she's been in this home 18 years. She's actually owned it on more than one occasion. There was a mortgage fraud issue. Uh, somebody bought the house, let her stay as a renter. It's very complicated. You can read the full piece. It is linked in the show notes. This poor woman been through the ringer on this house. Anyway, back to the piece. It was signed by about 400 neighbors and hand-delivered to Burnt. In February, the plea worked. Burnt and Taylor continued renting with an opportunity to purchase the home by June 30th. He lowered the sales price to $250,000, but that was still out of reach of the tenants. Then it became a fundraising effort instead of an eviction effort, Falstrom said. Neighbor Julia Ingalls, Eagles was at the forefront of the initiative. Quote, I don't want anyone getting displaced or priced out of the community. We all believed collectively what we were doing here and what it was going to take to keep Miss Linda here. So many people know and love this woman. Taylor is known for the little free library on her front yard, which she keeps brimming with books, as well as her regular volunteer work around the community. They call me the mayor, Taylor joked. Community member organizers, fundraisers, including a block party, social media campaigns, and even an art show in which Taylor, who enjoys painting, sold some of her artwork. Local media covered the story, drawing even more attention. The organizers created a campaign site and a fundraising page, bringing in donations in the amount of five to $15,000. Local church gave the largest sum, almost $200,000, carrying the effort across the finish line. When it came through, my faith grew bigger than a mountain, Taylor said. In just four months, the people of Powderhorn Park had raised $275,000 for Taylor, enough to buy her home and even cover the repairs that were needed. Any additional funds will go towards utility payments. Taylor said she's just stunned. I knew my neighbors loved me, but I didn't know how much. By May 31st, one month ahead of her landlord's deadline, Taylor closed on her home after nearly 20 years and a very long journey. The house was finally hers. Welcome home, Miss Taylor. What a great story. People coming together. That'll do it for her to tell uh, today. Glad to be back working with you. We still have some days where I just can't do the show. Uh, it happened this morning. I had to do a little bit of uh, medication the night before, and it meant I slept 14 hours, missed my deadline. So that's just the truth. We uh, deal in truth here. So I'm just telling you why the show was a little off schedule for this particular episode. But we're going to do our best to keep working as much as we can. So hang in there with us. We appreciate it. You give us the most valuable thing you have, your time. We always want to respect it. And when we come on here and ask your time, we want you to get the very best of us that we can give you. So however you're watching or listening, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube channel on our partner with BigTalker.live, our radio partner out of Wilmington, North Carolina. We sure appreciate you being around. Make sure you reach out to us at hertelshow at gmail.com. If you want to email us at hertelshow on Twitter. And of course, my Twitter and our guest Twitter are always on the lower third graphics. You can always reach out and follow them. So until we talk to you again next time, we hope wherever you and yours are, you're well. We hope you're well fed. Talk to you again tomorrow for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So, let me...